Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Hello again, and welcome back to the podcast, which is dedicated to remembering what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain, and the important place that television had in our lives back then. Watching the box was a unifying experience for our society and provided a common reference point for us all. I think it was a time which has not been repeated before or since where families sat and watched television together and that in itself gave a common cultural reference point to us children at school and to our parents as they went about their daily lives. It was, in a way, a more simple time with fewer distractions getting in the way of being a child. Days seemed to last forever, and playing with your friends, going to school and starting to learn about life were the main things on your mind. I'm not sure it's quite the same today. Children do seem to have more choices about what they do, which is great in a way, but it does seem that some of my friends have spent years ferrying their offspring from one place to another to do whatever activity comes next, in a way I don't ever remember happening when I was a child. The default activity was to go outside and play, or go for a walk or a bike ride, and then go and play some more. Perhaps I'm being overly nostalgic, but I do think things have changed, and not always for the better. The same is true of technology. When I was growing up, we didn't really have technology in our lives in the same way as we do now. I think the closest I got to using technology was a spirograph, do you remember those? Or an etch-a-sketch, commonly known as the iPad of the 70s which appeared to be magic in the way you could draw something on it and then shake it up and it's disappeared, so you could start again. How brilliant was that? And the nearest thing to the internet for me was sneaking a call to dial a disc, do you remember that? To listen to the latest hit music and then being told off by my father when the phone bill arrived for wasting his money. Today it seems even very young children have got iPads and mobile phones and the like and I can't help feeling that wonderful as these devices are, that it takes away a bit of the self-sufficiency I was encouraged to have, and also means that children are always open to outside influences, both for good and for bad. I was reminded of how things have come on when I was driving with my wife recently, and we were talking about a song we listened to a lot when we had a holiday in Georgia about 20 years ago. Um, That's Georgia in the United States rather than the former Soviet Republic. As I was driving, I just asked my technology to play the song, and hey presto, it did. And that is wonderful. It really is. But shows how much we now take technology for granted. And it also got me thinking about a time I remember growing up, when I encountered some new technology, which not only wowed me, but also made me appreciate a TV show that I'd already liked even more. Sounds a bit mysterious, doesn't it? Well, Let me take you back to the summer of 1976. I was nine, and as many of you will remember, that was the summer of the great heatwave and drought. It was like nothing we'd had before. The hot temperatures began in late June and lasted until the end of August, and in that period, not only did we have sustained temperatures in the 80s and 90s, uh, Fahrenheit that is, I'm still working old money for temperature, which is, oh I don't know, what, 30 degrees centigrade plus? I can't remember the conversion sum we were taught at school. But also it hardly rained for over two months. 
Now, I know that in many places around the world, people just shrug their shoulders at that. But not in Britain in 1976, where most people would be delighted by a few sunny days in and amongst the usual dampness of an English summer. As regular listeners will remember, my father was a vicar. And because of his work, we as a family used to go on a long holiday, usually in August, when my father took all of his annual holiday. We always went to a cottage and did self-catering, as it's now called which never seemed like much of a holiday for my mother, to be honest. And we always went somewhere in the UK, as did many other families at the time. And I know from some of the feedback you've given me on previous episodes that the Colling children were not alone in being told, why would you want to go abroad when there's so much to see in our own country? Well, normally one reason would be obviously the British weather. Although in 1976, that wasn't the case, as our family holiday that year was one of never-ending sunshine and long, hot days. That year we went to stay in a cottage in a village near York, called Terrington, which is, ironically, now not far away from where I live. The cottage was in the middle of the village, and was pretty idyllic, I have to say. I have mentioned in previous podcasts that we always took loads of things on holiday with us, and this year was no exception, as my sister and I sat down in the car, and had lots of things which wouldn't fit in the boot of my father's beige Morris 1800, packed around us, meaning we were more or less trapped, until we were released when the car reached its destination. My parents' desire to take so much stuff with them also meant that we were often late in setting off on holiday, and this was the case in 1976, as we arrived in Terrington well after midnight, which was very exciting for me and my sister, being able to stay up so late, but not very practical because we also had the problem that, being town dwellers, we didn't realise that North Yorkshire villages at the time were also very, very dark after midnight, and we obviously hadn't got a clue where we were going. The only lights in the village were in the pub, where the curtains were drawn, but the loud noise of voices, laughter and general amusement meant that the regulars were enjoying what I later learned from my parents was called a lock-in. When my mother knocked on the door, the noise stopped, and the lights behind the curtain went out before what I presume was the landlord sheepishly poked his head around the door. When he saw it was just me and my mother, rather than the local constabulary knocking at their door at half past midnight, he visibly relaxed, turned back into the pub and shouted, Carry on, lads, before very kindly showing us where to go. The three or four weeks we had there were idyllic. Lots of sitting in the sun going that traditional reddy sort of colour that most British people did in those days when there was sunbathing. Even though it was scorching hot, we all played swing ball in the garden, if you remember that, and drank cold lemonade. We also had days out to the beach in Scarborough and and visits to places like the National Rail Museum in York, which had reopened that year just after being rebuilt. So all of this sounds very nice, but why is it relevant, apart from bringing back memories of that long, hot summer? Well, going back to what I was saying about technology... The cottage we stayed in had something which I found absolutely fascinating and compelling. A colour television. Now, some of our younger listeners may think I'm making this up, but many of us in the 1970s had black and white television sets. Our family TV at the time was a black and white set we rented from Radio Rentals. It had a good enough picture, but I recall it had no remote control, so every time you wanted to change channel or alter the volume, you had to push one of the chunky buttons on the control panel or turn the wheel, which was on the top right of the television set. Many of my happiest TV memories were sitting in front of that black and white set and its predecessor, 
which was actually one of those that had rotary controls on the front and did take a couple of minutes to warm up before the picture appeared. Colour television was introduced to the UK in 1967, the same year I was born, so it was still quite a new thing even by 1976. Not that many people I knew had a colour TV, and when I got to watch one, it was a pretty awe-inspiring experience. My grandparents were some of the first people I know to have one. Theirs was made by Pi, and they were immensely proud of it. However, not long after they got it, it went on the blink, and increasingly the colours became more and more peculiar. Ending up with everyone having either a purple or green face, which wasn't great. I'm not sure why they went that colour, but my grandmother, who was quite a formidable character, refused to admit anything was wrong with it, and so we had to sit and watch programmes with purple and green faces, and pretend that that was quite normal. Anyway, the fact I had access to a colour TV actually meant that I'd probably spent less time outside during the hottest summer on record than I normally did on the slightly damp UK-based holidays we normally had. But what it did do was captivate me. All these TV shows I liked were like different programmes when seen in vivid colour. Like so many things, you put up with what you have and don't think anything of it until you experience something better. And that was the wake-up call I had that summer. I was hooked. Shows I had watched and loved, like I remember particularly Space 1999, had me transfixed by the impact of colour, and I saw them quite differently. But my feelings towards one show in particular really changed once I'd seen it in living colour. other side of the wood, Mr. Tickle was asleep. You didn't know that there was such a thing as a tickle, did you? Oh, well, there is. Tickles are small and round, and they have arms that stretch and stretch and stretch. Extraordinarily long arms. Mr. Tickle was fast asleep. He was having a dream. It must have been a very funny dream, because it made him laugh out loud. And that woke him up. He sat up in bed, stretched his extraordinarily long arms, and yawned an enormous yawn. Mr. Tickle felt hungry, so do you know what he did? He reached out one of his extraordinarily long arms, opened the bedroom door reached down the stairs, opened the kitchen door, reached into the kitchen cupboard, opened the biscuit tin, took out a biscuit, brought it back upstairs, and back to Mr. Tickle. As you can see, it's very useful indeed, having arms as long as Mr. Tickle's. The Mr. Men had been on TV for, I guess, a year or so by this point, having first been shown on New Year's Eve 1974. 
I had watched the first episode then, in black and white, obviously, and it became an instant favourite, not just for me, but for lots of other children across the UK. I suppose it was aimed at quite young children, but was very engaging, and told lots of lovely, simple stories in an engaging way. The series was created by the cartoonist Roger Hargreaves, who, having forged a successful career in advertising, decided he wanted to focus more on his cartoons, and wrote the first Mr. Men book, Mr. Tickle, in 1971. Having initially found it difficult to get the book published, it became an almost instant bestseller, and he sold over a million copies of the various Mr. Men books in the next three years. I remember they appeared in the library of my primary school and were very popular alongside other books like Dr. Zeus's The Cat in the Hat. What made them so popular with small children were, in my view, two things. Firstly, that stories were engaging, funny, and could be a little bit naughty sometimes. And secondly, the illustrations were bright and bold, and done in vivid colours that leapt off the page. And this was what made my revelation in the summer of 1976 so powerful. Having seen the characters and enjoyed the first series, despite not seeing it in colour, meant that when I rewatched episodes now in vivid colour, the impact was immense. I think the BBC showed some new episodes of the show during that summer, but doubled them up with some of the original stories. So we had, say, Mr Happy repeated, followed by Mr Strong in a new story. Now, I suppose at nine years old, I might have been getting a bit old for the Mr Men. But I was on holiday, I enjoyed watching it, and with the addition of colour, it was even better than before. And I'm also sure that once I got back to school in September, I wouldn't have admitted watching the Mr Men on my holidays instead of being outside in the hottest sunshine of my short life so far. Going back to the show, as well as the brilliant animation of Roger Hargreaves, it had well-written, funny stories and narration by the incomparable Arthur Lowe. There's something about Arthur Lowe's voice. Whether it's in The Mr Men or in Dad's Army or many of the other TV shows he was in, which is immediately comforting and reassuring. And I think this was at the heart of why the Mr. Wen was so engaging. What you've just heard was the opening sequence to Mr. Tickle, which was the first of the stories that Roger Hargreaves wrote. He wanted to write a bedtime story for his young son, and imagined what a tickle might look like. And so Mr. Tickle was born. I remember that this story involved Mr. Tickle, with his enormously long arms, tickling people around his neighbourhood, including at a local school. As he walked along, he kept his eyes very wide open, looking for somebody to tickle, looking for anybody to tickle. Eventually, Mr Tickle came to a school. There was nobody about, so... Reaching up his extraordinarily long arms to a high window ledge, Mr. Tickle pulled himself up and peeked in through the open window. Inside, he could see a classroom. There were children sitting at their desks and a teacher writing on the blackboard. Mr. Tickle reached in through the window with that extraordinarily long arm of his, went up behind a little boy called Peter and tickled him on the back of his neck. Peter giggled out loud. That giggling at once, said the teacher sternly. Mr. Tickle waited a minute, then reached in through the window again. Mr. Tickle's extraordinarily long arm went right up to the teacher, paused, and then tickled. 
The teacher jumped in the air and turned round very quickly to see who was there. But there was nobody there. Mr. Tickle grinned, a mischievous grin. I'm not sure what Ofsted would make of a stranger reaching through an open window to tickle a young pupil during class, but it was all incredibly gentle and innocent. And that was true of so many of the Mr. Men. Which ones do you remember? We had Mr. Happy, who was in the first episode to be shown on television. Mr. Jelly, who shook like jelly, obviously. Mr. Small, who was incredibly small. Mr. Silly, who was, well, very silly. I think you get the idea. Oh, there's also Mr. Bump, who I quite liked, who went around with a bandage on his head and kept bumping into things. They all starred in their own short stories, where whatever their speciality was, whether it was being like Jelly, being very small or being very silly, always led to life being that little bit better by the end of the five or six minutes of each episode. And that was the simplicity of the whole show. By 1976, the success of the Mr. Men books and TV show allowed Roger Hargreaves to quit working in advertising to become a full-time author and illustrator. And in the end, he produced 46 Mr. Men books, which were, in time and to redress the gender balance, joined by 33 of the Little Miss books. He also wrote the Timbuktu books, which were a bit like Mr. Men, but featured animals like Oink the Pig and Neigh the Horse. He unfortunately died at the age of only 53 in 1988, but his legacy was assured in those brightly coloured, lovingly drawn characters, which so captured my attention in the summer of 1976. The Mr. Men and Little Misses are still around, but they have changed a bit over time. As often happens, the rights to the characters and books have changed hands a few times, and they become a bit more big and brash to appeal to a more international audience. In some repeats, they've even dubbed over Arthur Lowe with other actors, which for me is the equivalent of painting over the Mona Lisa, such was the brilliance of his narration. All good things come to an end, as did my few weeks in Yorkshire with the colour TV in the heatwave summer of 1976. The heatwave itself continued to late August, and after the government had passed emergency legislation to restrict water use, and the sports minister Dennis Howell had been appointed Minister for Drought, the inevitable happened. It started to rain. And rain. And rain. And it didn't stop much until the end of the summer of 1977, which was cold and damp. That summer also brought the first colour television to our house, ensuring that what I'd seen in that few weeks in Yorkshire could carry on. The heatwave fast became a distant memory, but colour television was in my life to stay. What do you remember about the great heatwave of 1976? And which of the Mr. Men was your favourite? You can let me know by leaving a comment on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com or on our Twitter stroke X feed, Facebook, YouTube or LinkedIn pages or you can just email me oliver at my70stvchildhood.com that's all for now. But please join me next week for our next quiz and in a fortnight's time for the next episode of the podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And if you've enjoyed the podcast, it would mean a lot if you could like, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. So take care, be nice to each other and join me again soon for more from my 70s TV childhood.